a few years ago, I uh, one evening received a phone call that honestly none of us want to receive. It, it, I picked up the phone, and on the other end of the line was my mom, and and which wasn't abnormal, but I could tell there was something wrong. And so when I said, "What's going on?" she she said, "Well, we we take your dad to the hospital because he had a heart attack." It was a little bit of a shocker because he was a very healthy guy, and um, uh, long story short, he's doing just fine. He's still going good. Uh, but the deal was, I went to the hospital to, to see him that night, and, and I had an opportunity to talk to his doctor, and, and it wasn't what his doctor had to say about my dad that was what was startling. It was what he had to say to me that was startling. His doctor sat me down. He said, Charles, he said, "Um, you know, the the artery disease that your dad has, it's hereditary, and you should probably uh, think about going to your doctor and getting checked pretty quickly. And I said, okay. And I took that warning to heart, and so I did. I set up an appointment. I went to go see my doctor, and they did all the checks and all the blood work and all that stuff, called me back in, and my doctor sat me down, and he didn't have very good news. He said, Charles, there's a couple things we need to chat about that we found out. He said, one, um, you're, you're extremely overweight, which I was. And he said, that's going to be a problem here shortly. And he said, two, your cholesterol's so high it's off the charts. And he said, three, your blood pressure is also so high. We can't, you can't continue on like this. He said, if we don't do something, you're going to start having problems very soon. And so he put me on medications, called me back in in a few weeks to, to, to recheck me. And as I left his office that day, he pleaded with me. He said, please take my warning seriously, because if you don't do something, you're in trouble. And I did. I, I took that to heart, and it was hard to hear. I didn't want to hear it, but I knew that my doctor cared about me, and then I knew he didn't want something to happen to me, so I, I, I listened, and I had a choice to make. The choice was either I could keep eating poorly, and I could keep not exercising, and I could keep taking these medications that he's given me, and probably suffer unintended and undesirable consequences as a result. Or I could make some changes. I I could adjust my lifestyle. I could start eating better. I could do the things I knew to do to, to help myself physically. The doctor's words for me that day were a wake up call. I needed to make some changes. And those changes, I'm telling you, several years later are still hard every day. Maybe you've gotten a wake-up call. Maybe your wake-up call hasn't been necessarily medical-related. Maybe your wake-up call came in the form of your husband or wife's suitcase sitting by the front door one night when you came home saying, if you didn't make an adjustment, they were gone and they were leaving. Or maybe your boss sat you down in their office and said, I'm giving you a final warning. Or maybe it was you stood before a judge and the judge gave you mercy one last time. I don't know what your wake-up call is, but somebody said something to you or something happened to you to kind of snap you out of the reality that you're in. It woke you up. And like me, you have a choice to make. You either continue 
down the road that you're going down, doing the things you've always done in the same way you've always done them, and suffer the unintended consequences, or you start making some changes, and you, and you accept the wake-up call as a gift that it is, that that, that that gift is there to love and care for you, even when it's hard to hear and even when it hurts. And I think, truly, this is what Revelation chapter 8 and 9 is to us today. It is a wake-up call from God to us. And before we see why that is, I just want to say a couple of things as I was preparing for this weekend. Before we dive into this, I, I just want to say, as I read through these chapters in anticipation for today, I felt the need rise up in my soul to do some PR work for God. I, I, I wanted to soften the edges a little bit for you. Because, because God in these chapters isn't coming across very loving and very gracious. He's not coming across like the God that I know. And so I thought, man, I need to somehow spin this so that it sounds better than it really is. It's PR work. But then I quickly realized, no, 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 no. You don't do that. God doesn't need me to help him with PR. He's doing just fine on his own. Just speak what's here. And so I, I, I am I'm going to do that, but I was reminded, just like my doctor cared enough about me to tell me the truth, so does God care enough and love you enough to tell you the truth today. And it's always important to remember as we step forward through these chapters that always, always God's truth is always anchored in his love. Always, even when it hurts, even when it's hard to hear, even when we don't want to hear it, it doesn't change the fact that his truth is always anchored in his love. Here's the other thing I was thinking about as I was preparing this week. Speaking of truth, interesting in this day and age we live in today, it seems a lot of people, and I lump myself into that a lot of people category, we tend to, we tend to, trade ultimate truth for subjective truth. And this is, what, this is what I mean. In our attempt to discover the truth, we often begin with the question, what is true for me instead of what is actually true? And when we do this, this is one reason people have a problem with God. This is one reason people have a problem with Scripture. And instead of saying, if God exists, then whatever he says about me and whatever he says about the world is true. Instead of saying that, we begin with, well, if God exists, then I will determine if what he says lines up with how I want to live my life. That's when we trade truths. And as a result, you know what happens. We end up with this Bible that's all cut up into little pieces, and we only save the parts that we like. It's like Thomas Jefferson's Bible. If you remember that, Thomas Jefferson cut up his Bible and only put the parts in that he liked. And he got rid of the rest. That, that, that's, that's what happens when we do this. And so as we move forward today in these chapters, you and I have to make a determination that if God is who he says he is and he does what he says he does and what he speaks is true, whether it hurts or not. 
It's still truth, but it's always grounded in his love. And if what he says is true, then what we read in Revelation chapter 8 and 9 is going to be a wake-up call for us today. And if it's not true, well, then we'll just end up like the people at the end of chapter 9 that we're going to dive into in a little bit. So no worries there. So let's, let's just get a, a little overview of, of chapter 8 and 9 as, as we go. Because one of the ways that God reveals his, his faithfulness is through the execution of, of his judgments. We see this as an ongoing theme all throughout the book of Revelation. In Revelation 8, verse 1, it begins with the Lamb. He's breaking open the seventh seal. If you remember last week, we talked about the first six seals. Today, the Lamb breaks open the seventh seal. And what's interesting about this is what happens right after he breaks open the seventh seal. It says, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about a half an hour. Silence. Ooh you know that's not good. You've experienced that silence. That silence that indicates something big is about to happen. You, we get little glimpses of that in our life. I got a little glimpse of that a few weeks ago. We, uh, <laughs> we, I, was, I was getting a glass serving dish off of the top shelf of the upper cabinets in the kitchen. You know the cabinet you never go to so you stick everything up there that you never use while well, I was using it I pulled it out and as soon as I pulled it out it slipped from my hand silence as that thing fell to the floor and shattered in a million pieces cracking a brand new tile underneath and I froze and stood there in silence silence is an indicator something big is about to happen we feel that tension. We feel the tension when you hear the, the, the brakes squeal down the road and you're waiting for the crash. You feel the tension when the little kid falls and you're waiting for the blood-curdling scream to come. There's that moment of silence that happens. And each one of us fills that silence with something. Sometimes we fill that silence with, with cringing. Sometimes we fill that silence with 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 hiding. Sometimes we freeze. Sometimes we swear. Sometimes things happen in that silence. But I love in chapter 8, you know what that silence is filled with in heaven? It says it is filled with nothing but the prayers of God's people. A testament of the power of prayer as this silence is broken. And while the majority of chapter 8 and 9 deals with judgment, the first part of chapter 8 fills with prayer. And I love what it says, verse 3 and 4. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him, and with the prayer, to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. I remind you, this, this revelation is not a code to decipher. It is not about fear. It is about hope. And what I love is that this is written, this is written to a group of people, of believers who are suffering at the hands of people who want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with God's rule. And so they are desperate and they need Him to act on their behalf and they don't know what else to do, so they pray. They pray. Heaven is filled 
with these believers' prayers. And if you're like me, it's easy to pray when things are bad, when things are hard, when I'm struggling, when something happens. It's, it's easy to go to God in prayer in those moments. What's harder for me is to believe that God actually cares, that he actually listens, that he actually wants to hear my prayers. That's the hardest part. And yet what we see here in chapter 8 is John has this stunning picture of the prayers in, in God's throne room like incense, like a sweet aroma that is just surrounding the throne of God. God not only hears them, but he welcomes them. And it's because of our prayers that he will act on our behalf. I, I love how Pastor David Platt puts it. I, I borrow this. He said, you know what? Our battles are fierce. And the things that we're facing are fierce. The things that were happening in Revelation are fierce. But in our own lives today, our battle is real. But he also reminds us that our prayers, they're effective. They work. Because our God is is faithful. He always has been and he always will be. I wish we could spend all morning just focused on these verses, but maybe this would be a good study for you and your chair time this week. Or, or maybe in your small group, you could spend a little extra time on just these first four verses of, of Revelation chapter 8 would be good. But what we see next is that the silence is broken. The silence is broken and we see God's judgment come in the form of these trumpets to announce his judgment that is affecting a large part of the earth. And if you're familiar with, with the Old Testament and Israel's history in the Old Testament of our Bibles, you're going to see that these judgments are similar to the judgments that, that uh, the Egyptians faced. And, and I, as, we, as we looked at those plagues that, that the Egyptians faced in Exodus, we see this because Pharaoh, because the Egyptians, they wanted nothing to do with God. They, they, they wanted nothing to do with him, and God gave them chance after chance after chance to turn to him. And these plagues that he sent on them were a wake-up call to the Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. They were, they were rooted in God's love but they were a wake-up call to try to get their attention in order so that they would turn to him and away from their evil ways for good. That was the attempt, and the same is true with what is happening here in Revelation chapter 8 and 9. God's judgment affects a third of the earth. And let me just give you a glimpse of what some of those look like. It says this in 8-7, The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. It says, one-third of the earth was set on fire, one-third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. As you read on in Revelation chapter 8, you'll notice that even more of God's creation is being affected. Even more of God's creation is being destroyed. So if we jump ahead then to chapter 9 and verse 3, it says the locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth and they were given power to sting like scorpions and they were told not to harm the grass or the plants or the trees, but the, only the people who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. Now last week we learned about that seal that was placed on their foreheads and we saw this seal in Ezekiel's vision in the Old Testament of Scripture and it represents a, a seal assigned to to protect God's people from these judgments, the judgments of 
what it goes on to say, a third of all the people on earth were killed by these three plagues, by fire and smoke and burning sulfur that came from the mouths of horses. A third of the earth destroyed. Now this is, this is hard. It's hard to hear, it's hard to say, it's hard to teach. It's hard to understand. And remember how I told you that Thomas Jefferson, he cut his Bible all up to only include the parts that he wanted to hear? I imagine Revelation 8 and 9 did not make his cut. Wouldn't have been there. And listen, I get it. I get it because this stuff is tough. It's disturbing to say the least. And as we just kind of glance through these chapters 8 and 9, it doesn't really add to God's resume on being a loving, compassionate, caring God. So so what do we do with this? How do we reconcile what I know of God to Revelation chapter 8 and 9? Well, I'm borrowing this from an author. He wrote a book called How Not to Read the Bible, and this is how he reconciles it. He says, when I struggle with the violence of the Bible, I try to recall the God of the whole Bible. The God who is patient, loving, compassionate, and forgiving. And my trust in God isn't a blind trust whatsoever. It is a deep trust built from a lot of questioning and looking at who God is throughout the scriptures, not just parts, but the whole Bible. Boy, I am sure glad people don't just judge me based on my behavior last week in traffic. Because they wouldn't get a very good picture of who Charles is. I hope that I'm a good father. I hope I'm a good husband. I hope I'm generous. I hope I'm caring. I hope that is who I am. But last week in traffic, I didn't demonstrate that very well. If people only saw that, they're getting a wrong picture of who I am. They're getting a wrong image of who I am as a whole person. And we must read these passages of Scripture like Revelations 8 and 9 with whole Scripture in mind. Otherwise, we get a wrong idea. We get a wrong picture of who God actually is. And I know some might respond to this and say, okay, all right, but, but we still have these passages. And honestly, I can't get behind a God that does that. I can't get behind a God that, that would do a thing like that to people. And if that's you and you struggle with that in this room, then I want to tell you I, empath- I empathize with you because I felt this way and I, and I get it. I wrestle with these things too. But can I ask you a follow-up question to your doubt? Can I ask you, if you took just the parts of God that you like and you put them in a book, and you took out all the rest. You took out the hard stuff. You took out the stuff that's uncomfortable. You took out the stuff you don't want to hear. Would you want God then? And I ask you because I think I know the answer. And I bet even if you got rid of all that stuff, your answer would still be no. And this is why I say that. And this is how I know it. Look what happens in the last two verses of Revelation chapter 9. And it says, But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that could neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. At the end of the day, It's not God's judgment people have a problem with. 
It's God people have a problem with. At the end of the day, it's not the hard stuff that people struggle with. It's God people struggle with. Think about it. These people in Revelation chapter 9 who were still alive, they saw the most horrific things take place right before their eyes. They knew what was at stake. They knew they could be next. They knew this. And yet, bowing down to God was still detestable to them. They refused. These people would rather die, rather die than give up control of their life and give up their lifestyle. They would choose death over God. That's hard to, that, that's hard to think about. It, it, it's heartbreaking because these people are deceived and they don't even know it. They can't see. I mean, look again at this verse 21. It says, They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. Listen, we all choose to worship. We are all worshipers. Every single person in this room, every single person around the world, we all worship something. These people just not worshiping God. Instead, they... They're, they're consumed by, by putting their hope in, in the things that they think are going to give them value or worth or comfort or significance. And, and the fact is that all these things are useless. They're dead. They lead to death. In fact, this author puts it this way. He said, the irony here is that in rejecting the true God and his worship, they are worshiping the very things that are causing their misery. The reason we struggle with the concept of God has less to do with his judgment and more to do with our worship and where we put that worship. For I can't see my need for God because my heart is so consumed with so many other gods, primarily the God of self, me. You know, at the beginning of our time together, I, I told you that my doctor cared enough about me to tell me the truth, even though I didn't want to hear it and it was hard to hear. And regardless of how it made me feel, I had a choice to make. I, I could take his word for it or keep going down the path I was going down. And that is true today for you. Sitting here in this room, I may be telling you something that is hard to hear. But it's because of care and love. You have a choice to make. And God cares enough about you to tell you the truth. Because remember what I told you? That God's truth is always, always anchored in his love. However, as I wrestled with at the beginning, we all wrestle with the fact that when we do this, we, we attempt to switch what is true for me instead of what is actually true. And if we begin with what is true for me, then you know what happens? We try to put God fit into our little box, and that's never going to work because God is never going to allow himself to be placed in one of our little boxes. But if we begin with the second question, what is actually true, then we will begin to see God for who he is and who we are in light of that, we will discover that, that God's ways, yes, they're not my ways. And I don't always understand why he does what he does. I'll admit that. But I do know he loves me. And I, I can trust him. 
because he cares for me. And, and we, we see that God's judgment, it truly, it's only come here after his many, many attempts to, to get people to reach people who have truly ignored him. And most importantly, we discover that, that God has been pursuing us this whole time from the beginning of Genesis on. It has been a story of a God pursuing us from the day before I was born until today. God has been pursuing my heart over and over and over because that's the kind of God he is, a God that loves you and cares about you to the point that he will go to such great lengths to reach you and have a relationship with you. That is why he sent his son Jesus into this world. He came humbly as a servant who, who who was born as a human, who, who suffered the consequences of death on a cross, who was buried, who rose again three days later, all so that we could have a relationship with him. Ultimate pursuit of us from day one all the way through. I just, I just have missed my need for him because, because I'm, I'm so consumed with other things that I'm bowing to this entire time. It's all about our worship and who we want to worship, what we want to worship. So just as Revelation 8-1 began with a moment of silence and praying, I want to close giving you a moment of silence and praying. Maybe this is a wake-up call for you today. Maybe you have some choices to make, some decisions to make. So I want to give you a moment, and, and during that, this time, I'm going to ask you to pray this. Maybe there's some stuff, maybe there's some idols, some worship that is misdirected in your heart today. Maybe you have been making some choices that you know are going to lead down to some unattended consequences that it's time to course correct and to come back. Maybe there's some confession that needs to happen in your heart today. Or maybe even asking the Lord to show you, to reveal what is in your heart today. Take a few moments to do that. The second thing I'll say before we do this is maybe you're here today and you never even realized your need for him. Maybe this is the first time you've ever thought about this. Maybe this is the first time you've said, boy, I have been living my life for me and it's time that I give it to the Lord. It's time that I, I believe in my heart. I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to give him my life and I want to follow him. I want to be on that road. Maybe that's you for the first time. Take this moment now to tell him that. And let's, let's pray and then I will close. Let's do that. Jesus, I'm overwhelmed today that you love us so much, that you care about us so much. Lord, you're willing to tell us the truth, even when it hurts. 
Lord, I'm grateful for a God that cares and loves me that much. Thank you for your son who came here. Lord, who, who was crucified, who died and rose again. Lord, I thank you for that gift. I thank you for relationship I can have with you. Lord, I, I confess and I apologize right now for the times I have placed things above you where I have put idols in my life and given them my attention and my worship instead of you. Because you deserve that, not them. So Lord, I, I confess those things to you now. And Lord, I, I ask that you, would, that you would strengthen us, fill us, and guide us, that we would listen to these words, that we would take them seriously, that as we leave, Lord, that, that we would not be leaving the same as when we came. And all of us are making some choices differently this week, Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord, and I thank you for these words you've given us today. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, stand and let's say this together as you leave. Revelation 1, 4, here we go. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. See you later.